If you found Isaiah chapter 9, why don't you stand and we'll read together God's Word. Isaiah chapter 9. <clears throat> I'll start in verse 1 and read to verse 7. You probably have read this passage and you know this passage. Remember, it is in a context. Something is happening in the book of Isaiah. And we pick up right in the middle of a thought. Chapter 8 is judgment, and then you get to chapter 9 and begins with the word but. That is to say, there's a contrast. Chapter 9, verse 1. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray for brothers and sisters that are just barely hanging on. That know truth and need your spirit to apply it to our lives. So help us, God. Pray for those that are here today that are dead in sin, that you, by your Spirit, would awaken their hearts to believe. And God, I pray you would breathe the encouragement of the gospel into the souls of people. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it has been said that the darker the cloud is, the brighter the rainbow might be. Most of us have a hard time believing that. That the more severe the pain is in life, the more pure joy can be found later on. There are many sitting here that actually doubt that. On the other hand, there are some of you sitting here today, you have shed real tears of anguish this year, maybe even this week. And even though you're still hurt, you've actually found comfort in the arms of Jesus. 
Jesus. Christmas is about the coming of Jesus. The one on whom the day he was born, he was already eons older than his own mother. The one through whom the world was made, he came into the world like each one of us, born like you were born. The Bible says he became like us to save us. What does the creed say? That he is God of very God. Born to a humble girl in a nowhere town. He came in weakness that he might save us in strength. I mean, even in the text in Isaiah chapter 9, where you read it, Isaiah looks forward. Remember, we always read a passage in the context. He looks forward to this Savior. He gives him the fourfold name. We know the name. As wonderful counselor, because he is so wise. Mighty God, because he's so strong. Everlasting father, because he cares so much. And the prince of peace, because he brings wholeness. We're told down in verse 7. In fact, you can go ahead and look at it. Let's just go right to the Bible. Down in verse 7, we are told that God himself. You see it? God's going to do this. The text says in verse 7 that the zeal of the Lord of hosts, that the passion of the God of armies is going to make this happen. That this is God's doing and, and not ours. That it is his zeal. Do you know the word zeal? You understand what zeal is? Maybe on Thursday you had a certain level of zeal as you tore into that food on Thursday. Thanksgiving zeal. Connie makes a, a, a lemon cream cheese pie that's maybe my favorite food in the world. And Thursday I tore into it with zeal. Then again Friday because she made two with zeal. You understand the word zeal. The, you take that over here and how does it, what does it mean in the Old Testament? You find that word zeal, jealousy in Proverbs chapter 6. Uh, we're told that, that a husband is jealous for his wife with zeal. Song of Solomon tells us that the bridegroom is, he loves his bride with zeal. And this word zeal, it describes God's passion for you in salvation. And to understand that, we've got to go back. We've got to go back in history. We've got to go back to the context of Isaiah chapter 9. We've got, got to go back 700 years before the very birth of Jesus. Got to go back beyond the minor prophets, get back past the exile, and land there. The nation on the brink of disaster, a lot like our own. We find Isaiah, a man in anguish. He's hurting. He's worried. Because right over the border, right over the northern border, there's a warlike people that's descending. They're led by a man who's a killer named tiglath Pileser. He's a brutal man with chariots that are going to roll right over all the people in Judah and Israel. The rolling farmland will be torn to shreds. Don't forget, the king is dead. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? 
Isaiah says in the year that King Uzziah died, he'd been alive 52 years, now he's gone and we're being threatened. On top of that, it's been a long time since anybody in Judah or Israel actually loved God or worshipped God or honored God. And the context of Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9 is judgment. Come down chapter 8, verse 22, right before you get to chapter 9. There you find judgment. They'll look to the earth, but behold, it's distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. Do you see the words? You ought to circle them there. Distress, darkness, depression, anguish. Some of you can identify with some of those words. And in the midst of every bit of that, Isaiah points forward 700 years. And he points to this child that will be born. Look, it's what every mention of Christmas must do. Reminding us that we can live with joy, we can live with strength, we can live with contentment because of Jesus Christ. Now look, after everything, after all you've been through this year, after all that you've carried, being spiritually drained and genuinely tired, all I want to do today it's what Elizabeth Elliot said. I just want to use this passage to help you just take the next step and do the next thing. But do it with a seed of joy in your heart. You see, because when Jesus comes, he defeats sin and restores joy. Some of you got the first part right. You, you understand Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He defeats sin. You've forgotten this other part. He also restores joy. With that in mind, let's go to the passage and uh, just give you a couple of steps that uh, we might get from this passage. Here's the first one. Number one, I just want to speak plainly. You need to quit trusting people and start trusting Jesus. You need to quit Looking at people for satisfaction, happiness, for help. You quit. They're going to let you down every single time. I don't care how good a person it is. They're going to let you down. Even now. You sit there wrestling with your own pain or junk or maybe it's sin or hurt or disappointment. And this passage shines at me and reminds me I can, I can trust him. Let me show you what I mean. Now, take it in its context. Chapter 8 tells us that God's people are all under judgment. And then you end up in verse 22. See the words? Distress, darkness, anguish. But look, look at the turn. Verse 9. I mean, verse 1, chapter 9. That in chapter 9, Isaiah looks forward. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Then he takes us back vaguely. A former time... People of Israel, Naphtali, Zebulon, they were judged. There's something else coming. There, there won't be any more of that anguish and gloom. 
There was, an, there was enormous spiritual darkness over Israel. The prophets lied. The people floundered. The religion was dead. Get to the end of the Old Testament, 400 years of silence. God doesn't speak. But verse 1 says, come to the end of verse 1. Get down, down on, on the page a little bit. But in the latter time, Isaiah doesn't know when. He speaks vaguely. Former time, latter time. In the latter time, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and he pinpoints it to Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. And then you get to verse 2. Verse 2 becomes a runway of grace. Let me read verse 2. You, you, you sang it already. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Great light. Light has shone. This, this verse, by the way, Matthew picks it up and says, okay, this is about Jesus. Matthew 4, 16. We sang it. This is a reminder, the coming of Jesus, that Christmas is the coming of Jesus, tells us it is the light of the gospel, the light of salvation, the gospel of grace. I mean, even the best of us sitting here, the nicest, even the best of us, the most educated, the most well-behaved of us sitting in this church, we are born spiritually disabled. We come into this world without eyes to see and ears to hear. We don't have a heart to believe. And Christ, who is the life giver and the soul saver, he comes, as John will say, remember what John says? That in him, in Jesus, in him was life, and that life is the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. What do we believe as Christians? We believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior for sinners. He's the only escape, the only way to escape God's judgment. Jesus is the only reason to celebrate Christmas. And by God's grace, through His Spirit, today I'm just asking you to trust Him. To put more trust in the Jesus that has saved you He's taken away your sin. Now believe that he can restore your joy. I'm asking you to quit trusting in people and looking to people. Don't, they're not going to provide you the help you need or fulfillment you want. They're not going to hold you. They're not going to make you happy. So you know this probably already in your head. I'm asking you to take this step into with trusting that Jesus is going to get you through that. So the first thing I want to point out is if we've got to quit trusting people, start trusting Jesus. I think there's something else to consider from this passage. Here's the second thing. Number two, I want you to push yourself. Number two, push yourself to rejoice in Christ. It sounds a little odd, but I, I, I said it like that because so often uh, we see Christianity as passive. We have a passive approach to Christianity. Even sometimes coming to worship, we sit in worship to what we might receive instead of thinking of what we might give. In worship, showing that worship is us showing the, the worthiness of, of God. Christianity is passive in that God acted on us to save us by grace through faith. But once he's done that, sanctification, your growing in Christ is active. It is you pressing in. It's self-control and discipline. It's working out our salvation. 
As you look at this, a couple of places you might see, notice it with me in verse 3. Verses 3, 4, and 5, the prophecy from Isaiah gets specific. And notice in verse 3 the way that the joy, look, look how joy is described. Joy is a, is a result of the light from verse 2, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Joy, rejoice, joy, glad. Do you hear those words? That is not just God saving you from hell. That's a wonderful thing. There's more to it. There is joy. And Isaiah goes to... Uh, Isaiah goes to, to illustrate this in verse 3 and 4. Notice what he says. Read verse 3. You see that joy is compared to a harvest festival. You see that in verse 3? You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They have rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest. When it was a great season and just enough rain fell and the sunshine right and the crops were beyond what we can think of, and all the farmers got together and brought their crops in and put them all in the barn, and they had a big picnic with their families, celebrating how good it is, the harvest festival. And the writer says, it's like that. It's joy like that. And maybe that didn't register with you, so he goes on to describe it a little further. Come down the page. Verse 3, at the end of verse 3, describes the joy of Christ like an army that won a, a hard-fought battle, gave everything they had, and on the end of it, they have victory, and that victory brought with it great rewards. Maybe you like to watch documentaries. If you don't like to do that, maybe you should like to watch documentaries. In World War II documentaries, you can see it oftentimes at the end of VJ Day or VE Day when, the world, when World War II is over and people, pandemonium, ticker. Ticker tape parades, people kissing people they don't even know. This great jubilation. Or go back another hundred years in history and there you find the Civil War when the Emancipation Proclamation finally, when it's over, the Civil War is over at Appomattox and once it's done, people are set free. It's the idea of this liberation. How, how God's grace in Christ brings us to this point of joy. How the gladness, see the words? The gladness is found in Jesus, and if that's the case, then what can start happening in your life is that the joy of the Lord becomes my strength. Verse 4 tells us why it's so great. Notice verse 4 with me. Why is it so great? See the reason there? See the turning in verse 4? 4, why, why are we celebrating? Well, here's the reason, verse 4. 4, look at the words, the yoke of his burden, hear that? The staff. For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. I won't deal with all of that, but you take that yoke, staff, rod, all of that's the language, is the language of a slave master and a slave. It's the word yoke. You know yoke. It's what you would harness an animal up, or maybe a human, harness a human, a person that might pull a burden, might pull a load, carry the weight. You know what it feels like, right? To carry the weight of the world, the guilt of sins, the worry of tomorrow, and pull all of that through life. And the imagery is that at the, at the cross, the blood of Jesus, Jesus comes and he takes off that yoke. 
And he says, take, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. The burden is light. Or, 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 or here's the, the rod and the staff. You see that in verse 4? It's broken. That, that rod that he beat you with, this one born comes and breaks it over his knee. Here is the slave set free. Here is God removing the yoke. Here, here is grace that gives me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. And the Bible says that whomever the Son sets free is free indeed. See, there's deep, lasting, profound joy and forgiveness and being restored. You know what it's like to be forgiven? To have done something really bad and somebody say to you, I love you and forgive you. Look, look what else. <clears throat> Got to go quickly. Look what else the light of Christ is compared to. The rod of, keep looking at verse 4. The rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. You see that? On the day of Midian. So you've got to ask the question, well, what's the day of Midian? What happened in Midian? That's over at Judges chapter 7. It's the story of Gideon. You, you know that story where God whittled down the army from all those thousands down to 300 people. And God says to Gideon, here's the 300. You're going to defeat this giant Midianite army with 300 people, which meant that there are insurmountable odds. And then go read the story. God miraculously, astonishingly, incomprehensibly saved his people. And Isaiah is saying, it's like that. The light of Christ coming in to save is like that. Jesus is like that. In verse 5, Isaiah gives us another image of victory in Christ. And if you're not careful, you go running right by it. Let me read it. Let's go back and just read it for ourselves in verse 5. <clears throat> for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's kind of graphic, but what Isaiah is telling us is that because of what Christ has done, what did he do? His perfect life, his dying on the cross, his resurrection. Because of that, verse 5 tells us all the battle gear that the enemy has. So all his swords and his shields, cloaks and his boots, all of that has been rolled up into a big pile and set fire to and as that fire blazes up, what God has done is taking all those weapons of the enemy, burning them up, and the, by the light of that fire, there you see the slaves that have been set free. This text tells us that because of Christ, Isaiah will say that there is no weapon that is formed against you that shall prosper. So what... What do we have in this text? In this text, you're reminded that when you are in Christ, the weapons of the enemy are destroyed. In light of that, we look to the New Testament and we remember what Paul says to us. That God has forgiven us. In Christ, God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. He has canceled out the record of death that stood against us with all of its legal demands, he set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. And doing so, 
he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put all those devils to shame, triumphing over them. Think, think of what happens at the cross. Think of three things. The cross does something toward God, does something toward us, does something toward Satan. At the cross, God is propitiated. You, you can write down the word propitiation. At the cross, that means that the wrath of God is turned aside. He is no longer angry with sinners that are saved by faith in Jesus. So God is propitiated. Propitiation. And what happens to us? God is satisfied. We are justified. If you want to use the word, that means to say that, that God looks us up, looks at us as, as if we have not sinned. That means we are forgiven. So at the cross, God's wrath is turned aside. Men and women that believe are forgiven. At the cross, Satan is defeated. Isn't that what Paul tells us, Romans 16, that soon God will crush Satan underneath your feet. You see, when Jesus comes, here's what he does. He defeats sin, and as he does that, he restores joy. I, I want you to, when you walk out of here today, I want you to quit trusting in people, and you start trusting in Jesus. I want you to push yourself this week. To rejoice. It's going to be hard for some of you. It takes, takes this tremendous amount of effort to, to think on the cross of Jesus, to think on the victory that you have in Christ, to think of how God has loved you. You might even want to write down the ways God has shown his love to you, to, to think about the specific sins that God has forgiven you at the cross of Jesus, to think about something God intervened and did, some healing, to think about the love of God given to you in Christ. Push yourself to rejoice in Christ. I, I'll give you just one more and I'll be done. A third thing. <clears throat> I want you to find your hope in the one true king. Find your hope. You know verse 6, probably you've heard it most of your life if you're going to church. There in verse 6, we have the, the fourfold name, finding your hope in the one true king. Let me, let me look at it. You look at it with me. Isaiah tells us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A couple of things I want you to see. Here's the first one in this point. And that is that God is in absolute control. I want you to see the absolute sovereign rule of God as Isaiah speaks to it. We are told that the government is on his shoulders. That our God is in control. That Trump is not in control and Biden is not in control and COVID is not in control. And even Bill Gates is not in control. That our God is in control and your life is in his hand. Not only that, do you know that God's providence is the greatest conspiracy theory of all time? Some of you like conspiracies. Some of you don't mean to like them. Some of you, got, you just got addicted to them. I'm going to give you a conspiracy behind all those conspiracies. God's providence. You think somebody's behind all the actions that's going on in this world? I'm going to put someone behind that person. That is God's 
providence, that God is in absolute control, that the government will be on his shoulders. Not only that, I can look at this passage and not be confused about my purpose in life. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor. Handel's Messiah did us a, a disservice when we sang it, wonderful, comma, counselor, erase the comma. It is, should be read, wonderful counselor. A counsel, to give counsel is to plan out, to advise, to, to plot a course, to give a, uh, how I'm going to get through this. You say that God has a plan for your life, how do you know it? Right there, because we are told Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the counsel who is full of wonder. Wonder that is beyond human reasoning. He is infallible, unflappable. I, I can have hope making decisions this week, knowing that even if I make a wrong decision, the wonderful counselor is so wise, he can come and help me get out of the mess that I created. Not confused about my purpose in life, because I have a wonderful counselor. Not only that, not worried about my ability in Christ, connected to the mighty God. As if it weren't enough for him to be God, the writer puts in uh, a qualifier. He is the mighty God. That nothing is impossible for him. There is no sin that is so grievous. There is no marriage that is so estranged. There's, there is no hole that you fall in emotionally so deep. There is no life so messed up that this mighty God can't save. What did Jesus say before he ascended? All authority in heaven and here on earth belongs to me. Not only that, I don't have to feel like an orphan. Alone. Times when you just feel alone. I don't feel like an, or an orphan. Why? Because he is the everlasting father. God given to us, revealed himself to us as a father providing, dealing with his children with love and security fighting off the lies that tell you you're not going to make it and that you're not loved. This father is an everlasting father who, who always provides into the future. And I can live my life and not be in a panic. Why? Because he is the prince of peace. He is the chief and only peace giver. This one coming, he, he is the sovereign ruler that gives wholeness, the word shalom, peace to his people. He does that through the cross and he declares at the cross that the war is over. What did Paul tell us? With that in mind, there is therefore now no condemnation for all of those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life sets you free. Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why? Because when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, he defeats sin and restores joy. Will you, will you quit? Will you quit trusting in people and start trusting in Jesus? This week, will you walk out of here to the best of your ability and push yourself? Push yourself to rejoice in Christ. And will you find, I hope that you'll find, I hope you'll find your hope in the one true King. 
As we think about that, I'm just going to ask you to join me just in a moment of prayer and reflection with your heads bowed this morning. As you go to the Lord in a moment of just of thought, just think with me, your heads bowed. In your own life, think about yourself right now. What sin needs forgiving? Just in your own life. Name it. You might even just whisper it. Maybe you can't think of something. You've already put that to the Lord at the cross. How about this? What, What sadness needs governing? Sometimes sadness is not going to be taken away. Sometimes it just has to be governed, controlled. You need to put that under the Lordship of Jesus. What doubts need removing? Maybe there's a truth that you know to be true and you need to just confess it to your own soul. What truth needs to be confessed? Remember this Christmas promise. He's the wonderful counselor, a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. And the gospel tells us that you can know him. You can know him by faith. God is holy, created all of us in his image. You were created in the image of God. The image of God in you has been disfigured by your own sin. That sin separates you from God in such a way that you stand condemned. That condemnation doesn't have to be the end of your story. That story can include the love of God found in Jesus. You see, Jesus came and lived a perfect life, a life that you can't. And he dies on the cross there. He does that to take the wrath of God that's taking punishment. He does that for any sinner who will believe. God raised him from the dead so that sinners believe can can trust in the victory, that the, the promises are actually true. For some of you, you hear the gospel and finally it resonates. This morning we're going to have one more song. We're just going to sing song of worship. If you'd like to come forward and have a pastor pray with you or pray for you, or maybe, maybe today for the first time it's just come together and you want to ask Jesus to save you, our pastors would love to pray, to pray with you in order to do that. God has spoken in your heart. We'll invite you to come forward. Father, thank you for the good grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for defeating sin and bringing joy. Lord, I pray you would do that even today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together.